there. Welcome. And thanks for listening along with Kingstown Communion, an inclusive and affirming United Methodist Church in the Kingstown area of Alexandria, Virginia. And our community exists to gather people, just like you here now, into communion with Christ and extend God's table into the world through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. This podcast is just one way that we live this out. For more information about our church or to give to our ministry, visit kingstowncommunion.net. And if you live nearby, we hope you'll join us for worship on Sundays at Hayfield Secondary School. from Luke chapter 1. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in their years. Once when he was serving as a priest before God during his section's turn of duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. Now at this time, the offering of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right hand side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I know that this will happen? I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. When he didn't come out, he was when he did come out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. 
When his time of service was ended, he returned to his home. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Um, well, so, question, how many Gospels are there? Awesome, good. Do you know the names of the writers? That was a very grumbling mess. Great, okay. Do you know how they begin? Um, so, uh, scholars tell us um, to think of the four Gospels Um, the four gospel writers as completely different preachers. So uh, think of four different preachers you've known throughout your life. It's like that. Each with their own theological interpretation of Jesus' birth, and each preaching to a completely different congregation in a very distinctive place, which is why they are so different. Um, it is, it's no surprise that each of the Gospels has its own unique way of telling the story, the same story, which will unfold in the rest of the pages, you know, throughout the, 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 each of these Gospels, but each Gospel begins so differently. So first there's Mark, Anybody have any idea how Mark begins? Mark just doesn't make any reference to the birth having happened. He begins with John the Baptist baptized. And it's basically all the way into John the Baptist, baptism, we just passed all of that. Says something about what maybe John thinks, or um, Mark thinks is important. Then Matthew, Sounds like he just got done like consulting Ancestry.com. You might have heard that one read. It's boring. Um, and it's like 17 verses tracing Jesus' lineage, begotten and beget and beget and beget, um, all the way back to, to Father Abraham. And then John begins his gospel with what sounds like a choral prelude or some kind of, like, like you stumbled into a poetry slam um, with words that don't sound like they make much sense without a story to go with them, and there's no story at the beginning. It sounds like maybe the dawn of one of the the earliest Christian hymns, maybe, is what what John gives us. Maybe call it the, the Father's Love Begotten, or the Word Made Flesh, or something like that. There's Mark's way, there's Matthew's way, there's John's way, but today we are doing it Luke's way, which is also really unusual. By giving more gospel biblical real estate, Luke gives more space, more biblical real estate to the birth of John the Baptist than to the subsequent, subsequent birth of Jesus. Did you know that? Luke devotes 30 more verses. So we've got one that doesn't talk about it, one that gives the entire chrono- chronology of, you know, of years and years of ancestry, one that 
enters with kind of um, this fancy talk. He's, people used to call him, John thinks he's fancy, you know? And then you got the one that begins with less verses about Jesus than about John. And at the very beginning of this Luke text, there's this story about Zechariah. A story we always leap completely over every year in Advent. We normally ignore it altogether in the haste to feel like we have to get to Gabriel's annunciation to Mary, right? That's where it all begins. Um, the finally, we get to the birth of Jesus, right? But Zechariah, he usually sits in, in just the kind of distant background. And there, we might even hear read occasionally Mary and her cousin Elizabeth having this kind of what to expect when you're expecting conversation. And then Zechariah's in, in the background. But I would say this year, as we ask the question, how does a weary world rejoice? A world very weary right now. Perhaps there's something really important for us to see in that story that comes very first, at the very beginning of Luke, that we normally skip over, something we, we rarely pause to understand, something that uniquely Zechariah's story can, can teach us, this nugget of good news that we desperately need right now. Uh, because, like, have you seen the news, right? Uh, the ceasefire only lasted a few days and the humanitarian nightmare has resumed. And we're all bracing ourselves for a war in the Middle East. And do you wear contacts? Anybody here wear contacts? You better start making your own solution because not, not a single company can you, <laughs> right now, it's all, it's all been contaminated. Every, you know, all the eye drops, it started off with one company. Now it's just, we recommend no eye drops at all for anybody. Um, and then there's this serial killer on the loose now who's ho killing homeless people as of this week. And, 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 and just here locally, just this week, there's been such a rise in vandalism in Alexandria and theft that letters went out to the, to the, to the, the residents of Alexandria City banning the wearing of ski masks this winter, except those letters only went out to residents living in public housing. Unearthing this deep, but you know, we know pervasive, troubling, socio-racial socio bias underneath the kind of civic government, even in a city as enlightened as Alexandria, right? We're only just starting to approach it in this election season and the ousted speakers and the ousted representatives and the vitriol over, over empty seats. And, and then you add all of the usual holiday stress and all the feelings about being without loved ones for the first time this year and all the mixed anxiety and sense of scarcity and overspending that happens this season, plus just anything else that you might be going through that's none of that. It's just a whole lot, right? No wonder we are all so weary. We have no indication that, that Zechariah was in an, an anxious search for eye drops. 
But when, when Gabriel showed up, we do know that he was stressed, overwhelmed, and weary. Summed up in, in, in this verse where he tells that he and, and Elizabeth have, have no children. They're barren. And they're growing older, and they're growing older. And this, doesn't, this isn't just about a baby. Um, this, is, this means a complete dead end for them. I wonder if your weariness feels like it's going to hit a dead end soon. And like Sarah and Abraham and Hannah and Elkanah before them, their, their barrenness is about more than, than just having children. Like in their world, it felt like, like they had no future, had no ability to see through the dark to what was next ahead. No one to carry on the family name, no one to care for them in their old age, but even more than, than no, one to, no one to receive what had been handed down to them, which was this righteous, trusting relationship with the living God. In fact, it's what's been handed down to us now. In case you missed it, um, we're told that both Zechariah and Elizabeth are heirs to this long line of priestly tradition going all the way back to Aaron, the brother of, of Moses, basically, the text is telling us that the future of the faith itself is at stake in this barrenness. Will, will the church be built? Will the faith go on? For them, this is not just one bad year where you know, Christmas carols seem, seem to linger in the air a little differently this year. It's their situation, it looks down a pathway wondering if anyone ever will be trained again in the words and things of faith, will be prepared again to lead the people of God in worship, will be able to quote Isaiah by heart anymore. Will anybody be able to do that? I can't. Well, they didn't pass that down. We be, be ready to point people to, to the living, life-giving, like promise-making God. Will this faith go on? I don't know, they're thinking. Which is precisely why Luke goes into such great lengths to tell their story. It's a lot of verses. A lot of verses we skip over. As eager as we might be to, to kind of get to the main event in Bethlehem, Zechariah stands tall in the first chapter of Luke to remind us that God has been setting the stage for the birth of Jesus for such a very long time. This isn't just now. If you know anything about Abraham and Sarah's story back in Genesis and Hannah's moment between the generations of judges and, and kings, then you recognize that Zechariah and Elizabeth are, are, are serving as this bridge, this bridge from the world of the Old Testament to the world of the New Testament, from the chosen people of ancient Israel to all the other families of the earth. This is what is at stake. And in this weariness and in his worry, what does God give Zechariah to help him and us understand exactly what is happening here? Did you, did you hear the story read or do you know it? What does God give him? He makes him mute. God gives him silence. God forbid you give a preacher silence. God gives him silence. And in such space, finally time 
to acknowledge his own weariness. Gabriel does not show up with a sermon in hand or ask Zechariah to, to preach that sermon. No prophecy yet to proclaim, not even a prayer for the congregation waiting outside. God gives Zechariah silence. Today, today we find Zechariah has, has drawn the lot, which by chance puts him in the Holy of Holies, and he's alone in the inner chamber of the temple with a special job of burning incense on the altar while the people are outside praying. Incense rises around him and above the altar where we can see a, a burning presence of the divine and the angel messenger appears to Zechariah and in the silence, Gabriel points to the heavens. We're told Zechariah is overcome with fear. And then, then Gabriel delivers this unexpected and frankly like unbelievable news to him that in their old age, in the midst of all their weariness, in the midst of their barrenness, their prayers will be answered, in fact. There will be flowers growing on the other side of the stream, and they will have a child, and they will name him John, and they will be filled with joy and gladness because their child will be filled with the Holy Spirit and turn many people to the Lord their God. And this is not about just having a baby. Once again, it's like, it's about all the people of God having a future. All of the people of God. This, this bridge between, between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, this hope-filled, joyful future in this steady companionship with this wonder-making God. But what does Zechariah do? What any one of us would do, right? But, like, what, God? No, but, like, where, God? Like, how? Seriously, how, God? When? How, when, how God? What? What, God? Zechariah can't imagine it. Gabriel gives him this gift of silence in return. This gift of pause to acknowledge his own weariness. It's as if Gabriel says to him, this time, this time, this time, finally, listen to me, this time, dear prophet, dear preacher, dear priest, you do not have to explain it. You don't have to, you don't have to, to, to pontificate about it. You don't, you, you don't have to make sense of it. You just have to wait for it. Enjoy the silence. Some scholars actually say that, that Gabriel's rend rendering um, Zechariah mute is a punishment for his unbelief. Isn't that how we always receive it? What must I be doing? What must I be doing wrong? What did I do to deserve this? But I think it, it seems entirely possible that this silence was this angel's gift uh, this, inf this enforced sabbatical, this gestation period of his own doing with which the seeds of hope could kind of pour out of, this, this gift to him to just sit and recognize and acknowledge the weariness, all that they've gone through over this last year, to just take stock of it. Because the God knew, and the angel knew that Zechariah had a tendency to not learn very much when his mouth was open. 
I wonder how that applies to so many of us. Nothing he could say held a candle to what was happening right in front of him. And his, his muteness turned, it turned out to be the wilderness in which a dream was born. And so maybe we, maybe this is a lesson for us to be grateful for Zechariah's silence, which reminds us that pausing and, and being silent and taking space and slowing down It's this gift. It's this gift that Advent uniquely gives us, or it should. Because if we only go straight to the manger this season, you know what it's like. You know what this season is capable of being. Where it's just this gigantic blur and you are more weary after it than you were coming into it. Into our current wilderness, a dream is kind of gestating for us. A a holy seed is taking root, and we would do well to kind of take on some of that sacred silence and space. The the prophet Habakkuk um, has this invitation, and we don't read Habakkuk very often, but it says, the Lord in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, points again to that holy, that holy silence in the temple of the Lord, which will become this temple. You know what it becomes, right? Zechariah is this bridge between Israel and this hope for all the world, and that temple then becomes Mary's womb this season, where God is choosing to dwell anew there, no longer behind the heavy curtains of a holies of holies, but in the flesh and blood of humankind, in the joy and in the suffering we endure wherever we are. This year, of, of all years, we would do well to press the mute button or to ask God to mute us. so that we might be able to hold together. That's what we're doing here, is holding together the kind of weariness we feel and the joy we know is alive and is to come and is still right with us now. I think that we have this way of describing joy that is toxic in our culture. Um, And I love, I, I wanna play for you just this one minute video from somebody that I just love. I studied under her when I was at, um, at Duke, but I also, she is now a, uh, a Oprah book club. Um, now she's, she is a very popular author, appeared on the Today Show earlier this year. Somebody that we did our Lent study through um, a few years ago, Kate Bowler. And I think that she has this really wonderful way to describe what joy, what finding joy and weariness is often like for us and what it actually is. Choose joy. (laughs) It sounds like something I would believe, doesn't it? 
so close. The problem, of course, is that joy, not to be too technical about it, it's a gift from God. It's not the same thing as happiness. It is a fullness of expression of like peace and love and and openness to the world that is frequently completely supernatural. You don't just like white knuckle your way into joy. <laughs> you just live your life with as much beauty and truth as possible. And then sometimes you get joy. The idea that we have added joy to the list of like neoliberal virtues, like if you're just like quite the little bootstrapper and you have the right mental attitude that you too can choose joy. It is an awful commodification of one of the most amazing things that can happen to us. But that's the thing, right? It's like, it happens to us. We don't get to will our way into all the positive feelings of this world. Joy is something that will happen to you, and it will happen to you by the grace of God, something completely other than anything we can ever do ourselves. Only first, how does a weary world rejoice? How does a weary Phoebe rejoice? How does a weary Megan rejoice? How does a weary Dirk rejoice? By first acknowledging whatever weariness we feel. Let's pray. God, we often first feel it in our bodies. We know that that pain in our shoulder really means that we should go to the chiropractor, um, but also we're really good at pushing through the pain, white knuckling our way into the Christmas season where we can just be joyous and all the lights will be shiny and we'll be with those we love. But our weariness never goes away and our body tells us it hasn't as our shoulders move closer to our ears than they've ever been. And that little thing between our eyes like is, is, is more furrowed than, than ever. We've got wrinkles, we've got wear and tear, and we know it, God, we feel it in our body, but our head and our hearts have not acknowledged it. And so we instead of pushing it aside and picking ourselves up and going, I'm going to be joyful, God, we sit for a second and we realize that we ourselves cannot will ourselves into joy. It is something holy divine and mysterious and other and when we have it we have you God and so God we recognize what we can recognize which is that we are tired and that we need to pause that we need to be silent before you that we need to take a few events off of our calendars. We need to sit and maybe ponder where we've seen your peace and love and joy and hope in our lives because we haven't slowed down enough to even pay attention. And then, because of that, we will be overcome Like Gabriel 
appearing to, to Zechariah or the angel appearing to Mary, just overcome with this joy from on high that is not our doing. And it's lasting. God, give us that kind of lasting joy, not a quick fix. Lasting contentment in your presence. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.